Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Leo Valdez. I am your host on the LGBTQ studies channel of the New Books, New Books Network. Today, my guest is Leah Devon. Leah is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University. She focuses on the history of gender, sexuality, science, and medicine in pre-modern Europe and on contemporary queer and transgender studies. Her first book, Prophecy, Alchemy, and the End of Time, won the 2013 John Nicholas Brown Prize for an outstanding first book on medieval history. She has published articles in the GLQ, WSQ, Journal of the History of Ideas, among others, and co-edited, along with Seb Torturici, Trans Historicities, a special issue of the Transgender Studies Quarterly, published in 2018. Leah is also an artist and curator whose work explores queer, feminist, and gender nonconforming history. Her work has appeared in the One Archives Gallery, the Leslie Lohman Museum, and the Houston Center for Photography, among other venues. Today, we will be discussing Leah's second book, The Shape of Sex, Non-Binary Gender from Genesis to the Renaissance, published in 2021 by Columbia University Press. And I found out just now that The Shape of Sex sold out of its first printing. Congratulations, Leah, and thank you very much for being here with me today. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. So I wanted to start out with a quote from your introduction. You write, this study bears witness to the considerable burden that sex and gender marginalized people shouldered in meaning making and human making in the history of pre-modern Europe. This book is therefore about language and fundamental ways of thinking about how our ideas about sex and anatomy are never just about a physical act or about our physical bodies. Instead, they are always ideas about what it means to be human and what it means to be a self in relation to other selves and to the world. Can you explain this quote a little bit? What do you mean when you say gender marginalized people shouldered a considerable burden in meaning making and human making? And how is your book about fundamental ways of thinking? Yes, and I'd like to say that I don't think gender marginalized people shouldered in the past, only a considerable burden in this meaning making, but rather they continue to as well. 
And what I mean when I say that is that in thinking about gender marginalization and thinking about non-binary gender, people in the past and people in the present, as scholars and activists have rightly pointed out, often use gender marginalized people as instruments or ideas to think with, as tools to take apart systems of gender or sexuality. And this involves a sort of level of abstraction in thinking about categories and thinking about um, organization. And abstracting gender, gender marginalized people to make this sort of thought problem happen is incredibly dehumanizing. And this dehumanization is done in the service of constructing uh, social and intellectual systems and in analyzing them. Um, so gender marginalized people, without making any kind of choice about being involved in this process, thus get mobilized to create systems in ways that don't take much notice of them as real human beings. Um, they're not treated as, as peers, as collaborators in creating systems, not as living, breathing humans, but rather as tropes, as metaphors, as things to think with. And that's what I mean about this process of organizing society, you know, deciding what it means to be male or female by thinking about how um, non-binary people uh, uh, put pressure on that system of organization um, and uh, using non-binary people and as ideas to think about uh, all sorts of divisions um, in um, the geographic world, in the natural world, um, in, the, in, in our racial categories. And this kind of thinking places a huge burden on actual non-binary sex and gender marginalized people in creating these kinds of systems. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of the opening anecdote of your book, which is about Berengaria. Is that how you pronounce her name? That's correct. Yes. Um, can you just tell the readers a little bit about her story? Because it she appears in the introduction and then a little bit later, later on in the book. And she's kind of a central figure in a way. Yes. I I think in a way she is the central figure of the book. Mm-hmm. She's She's part of where I started in my thinking, she starts the book and I keep coming back to her over and over again. Um, the book opens with, with it's just a, a really explicit uh, medical, well, it's a legal record, but it gives a medical record. A surgeon examines her body and gives us a very detailed uh, a, a explanation of his very invasive process of looking at and analyzing her body. And, uh, it, you know, it was a real difficult decision about um, the ethics of reproducing that account, because it really does, um, you know, lay bare a a human being's body uh, in this very invasive way. Uh, But at the same time period, at the same time, you know, this happened to a person and to hide it would also be to hide, uh, you know, this very terrible experience that this person had. So, what I try to do in the book is because we don't hear anything from Berengaria about what she thinks about her own body, you know, what her own identity or desires are. The book in a way is trying to put back together the world of Berengaria, what she might've experienced, what might've been the rules that shaped her life, what might've happened to her. And that's, I guess, the way that I can try to pay back Berengaria for the way that we, we learn about her. Um, and the way that, you know, the story about this gender marginalized person is revealed to us on what was probably the worst day of her life. And 
That's the case with so many of these individuals that we learn about from the distant past. We get them because they ran afoul of some court and we have a court case, or they encountered a physician and we have a medical case. And uh, in none of these cases are the individual who's the, the subject, the person who is uh, sex or gender variant, are they allowed to speak for themselves? Um, and that's not unique to the pre-modern archive, by the way, but, but it's certainly very poignant in my book because so many people are speaking for gender marginalized people um, in the book. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And just to, just to recap um, for the listeners, Berengaria, um, the reason she appears in the archive is because her husband petitions the court to have his marriage to her annulled because she can't fulfill the marriage contract of bearing children. That's right. And a surgeon examines her and his analysis is that she's not a woman. Um, And he describes her anatomy in in great detail and says she's really more like a man than a woman. And so she can't uh, have passive sexual intercourse with any man nor bear a child. So, you know, the idea is that she, you know, she can't fulfill her duties that are expected of a woman of her time period you know, to get pregnant and bear a child and raise a child. And so, you know, that's, that's generally grounds for annulment of the marriage. And, um, and that's how we end up finding her in this snippet of a court case in, uh, in a medieval manuscript in a, a, in a small archive in Girona, Spain. How did you find the archive? The picture on the, on the second page is a picture of that legal document, right? It is. And you can see it's a very, it's a very kind of worm-eaten uh, legal document. I found this through a lead of another scholar, but I, I think that it's, you know, one of the things I really want to emphasize is, you know, this experience, and that's why I included the image. Um, you know, the the work that's involved in finding these kinds of fragmentary stories in um, in manuscripts, uh, in in archives that hold these um, uh, these medieval pre-modern sources. Um, and I would love to talk more about, about archives in general and, and what, um, what these manuscripts are like, if you'll, if you'll indulge me. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, these are, these are written on, um, on pieces of animal skin for those who aren't familiar mm. with what a medieval manuscript is like. Um, mm. and it's written by hand, you know, someone, someone, wrote it in handwriting. And then a lot of these documents are um, accompanied by little hand-painted, what are called illuminations or little little illustrated paintings. So they're also not just written out in Latin, like in this document, um, but they're in abbreviated Latin. So, um, so you have to learn a special a skill called paleography to be able to read them. But even then, each hand is kind of unique, you know, it's like anybody's handwriting, you know, it's totally even your 21st century handwriting might be hard to read. Well, 14th century handwriting <laughs> might be very unfamiliar and hard to read. So part of the process is not just finding the, the you know, the interesting piece in the archive and being able to go there and, and get it by hand, because in general, pre-modern sources aren't digitized, you know, they aren't something that we can just look up online, we have to actually go there and get the manuscript out and look at it. But then we might not at first be able to read it. And so we got to kind of like focus our eyes until the words kind of become familiar enough that they sort of crystallize into things you can read. So it's a, it's, I want to try to, to communicate that the process of doing research in this period is, is kind of like this, um, deciphering some secret, you know, or like kind of like some detective work. And it's very tactile. 
And, um, and I think it's, that's part of what's very exciting about it is to, um, to be able to be engaged with these documents that, you know, are like 700 years old. And just to think about all the hands that have held them and, you know, all the, all the changes that have occurred are, you know, surrounding these kinds of um, objects. And I think that's, that's part of what draws me into this period of, of history and um, and makes it more me- even more meaningful to me to find a story like this in one of those manuscripts. Absolutely. And I mean, the picture, I love the picture because you don't, you didn't cut off your own hand, your own hand appears in the image, or what I assume is your hand. And and you have a glove on too. You can't even touch it, I assume with your because because it'll deteriorate even further. So there's all these, it's a really delicate, it's a really delicate archive as well. And I mean, without this, her entire story would be lost because this is all that appears about Berengaria. There's nothing else about her, none of her own opinions. We hear nothing from her own voice. And could you speak a little bit about that? Because, you know, in some, the thought that occurred to me when I was reading your book, and of course I read other books that discuss the archival violences and these problems, but I was like, what a cruel joke, (laughs) really, just for, for us as marginalized people wanting to do marginalized histories now. And it's, it's a double marginalization, right. Of, of like not, having um not having her own words appear and then us not being able to connect with the past through the words of other gender marginalized people so could you talk a little bit about that complexity i know you touched a little bit about it at first but it's it's just you know it's very very salient theme throughout your entire book yeah i I think as historians, we're, we're often in this bind, right? So I said, you know, we encounter these people often on their, on their worst day and we encounter them through the institutions that make this encounter possible, right? So for this period, it's often, um, you know, a legal institution an ecclesiastical institution and a medical institution. And in general, uh, what we get are the, the, words of elites, right? Um, most people during this time period are, um, uh, are not literate, but even if they are, they're not um, generally in a situation that allows them to leave behind written records that we're then going to find centuries later, right? So we mm-hmm. find the records that are written by elite, mostly male writers, and they're, they're not interested often in asking for, you know, the voice and the subjectivity of, uh, of the individual who is, uh, who is the, the subject of the record. And even when they are, as is, is the case with a few of my records, they're, the, the authority is eliciting information from somebody under, you know, under duress in, in, a, in, in the context of a court case, in the context of, you know, this extreme pressure. And so we really can't take at face value, whatever that might, that person might've said about, you know, what their, their inner feelings are uh, about their gender or, you know, what their desires are for the future. So it, it is a, it's a very difficult uh, ethical process to figure out how to recover uh, these kinds of voices from the past uh, and to try to do justice to them as agents, you know, mm-hmm. as people who um, who had feelings and thoughts and desires um, that make it difficult to capture them. I think that I find a lot of inspiration in, uh, I mean, like I said, this isn't unique to the pre-modern archive. And many scholars who work on 
um, histories of enslaved women, for instance, uh, histories of um, uh, colonial subjects, subaltern subjects have done really important, really creative work in trying to help us understand how we might access those voices in, you know, in, in, in different imaginative ways. And I, I find a lot of um, utility and inspiration in following that kind of scholarship. And I try to apply it to my own work in, you know, knowing that we're never going to be able to, uh, to, to truly meticulously document what someone like Berengaria thought but that we can do it, that it's still meaningful what we have about her. And I think it's still important as an archive of, uh, of gender marginalized history, despite some of those limitations on what we can say about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So continuing with this archival theme, but turning it a little bit to, in a different direction, your book of course is on the medieval period. So, you know, the fall of the Roman empire essentially to the beginning of the, of pre-modern Europe and the Renaissance, um, I was struck, you know, your, your archive is diverse. You use religious texts, uh, visual art, encyclopedias, surgical manuals, um, maps. And one of the, one, one, one thing that I found interesting was you make the point that in the visual illustrations that you use, that where non-binary sex figures emerge, that they're not rare, that they're actually widely reproduced images. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the prevalence of non-binary sexed figures during the medieval period? Yes. And I think that in a way, this goes to the heart of one of the things I want to argue in my book and what I hope that readers will take away from it, which is we tend to think, and certainly it's argued in our political sphere in the 21st century, that uh, non-binary gender, uh, transgender, gender nonconformity is new and hence extremely threatening to tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And part of what I want to do in my book is show that it's not new, that ideas, people who are sex and gender variant have been with us for a very long time and that debates about how non-binary individuals, how non-binary ideas fit into society and how uh, society organizes itself has been going on for centuries, millennia, (laughs) and uh, that people in the past thought just as deeply, just as creatively, and just as, uh, 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 as vibrant a discussion and controversy as we have now occurred in the past over some of these same kinds of questions. So, in documenting these uh, these types of texts uh, across so many genres of literature and across a broad time frame, that was part of what I wanted to show was that this is a history that is um, uh, a history that is uh, it, it's it's not marginal, it's not trivial. Um, these images are not just a few; they are many, they are widespread. And they, um, they intervene in a lot of the most important, most fundamental kinds of categories and narratives that we put together for pre-modern history. And because of their prevalence, and I think because of their instrumental value in those conversations, they really can't be left out of that history. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. And on to those fundamental categories, you absolutely situate yourself within discussions of the human 
And, you know, you cite critical race studies scholars, you cite um, animal studies scholars. What does your book about non-binary gender from the Genesis to the Renaissance, what contributions um, does looking at non-binary sex individuals make to understandings of the category of the human? Yeah, I, I think both in terms of, of our modern world and in terms of the past, we can see that um, the kind of ethical consideration that's afforded to humans, right? Uh, inclusion in the community, the um, right to freedom from ostracization, from physical violence is accorded differently to people based on sex and gender. Certainly we can argue that now, you know, who's um, entitled to life chances, who's protected from harm and death. Um, It uh, happens very differently based on whether people are perceived to have normal gender, right, or or sex. Um, And so I think that the way that the category of the human um, affords that protection to um, individuals and communities is deeply inflected by um, by perceptions of um, sex and gender conformity. And so too with the past, we see over and over again uh, the accusation of non-binary sex being used as an instrument to dehumanize um, groups of people who are then marked for um, expulsion from the community or territory or from uh, or for large-scale uh, physical attack. So um, I think that uh, that part of what I do, and you mentioned critical race scholars, um, I am uh, deeply influenced by scholars who are writing about um, about race and the way that race um, uh, critically shapes ideas about the human. And I'm absolutely following scholars like um, Kim Hall, like Geraldine Hang, who say for us to really understand the development of racial categories, we need to go all the way back to the medieval period. We need to go all the way back to um, these moments where we can see the development of some um, uh, very important um, ways of understanding the nexus of embodied and cultural difference that um, we now tend to recognize as, as race, where we start to see the formation of those kinds of ideas. And what I want to add to that conversation is during that period, those ideas about physical and cultural difference are also completely entangled with ideas about gender. Um, So that um, racial difference, religious difference, and gender difference are really um, imbricated in the ways that European Christians during the time period that I'm looking at construct hierarchies of people and um, and uh, limits on who can be accepted as a human member of the community. Mm. Yeah, this this becomes very clear in your second chapter, the monstrous races mapping the borders of sex. Um, I wanted to touch on this a little bit. Um, it, it was a fascinating chapter, and the word monster, monstrosity, is such a powerful word. Um, I. I just so listeners know, like a lot of the chapter is based on the English Hereford map. The, Hereford, uh, yes. Hereford, Hereford. okay. <laughs> Hereford map of the world. And you discuss how there's a turbaned male-female 
figure at the geographic edge of the map in an area representing Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And, and so there are entanglements here between non-binary sex and race. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that and speak a little bit about how readers can understand how you're using race in this book? Yeah, let me let me start with the first question about the figure on the Hereford map, and then mm-hmm. and then let's come back to uh, how I use the word race in that chapter, and a little bit about uh, the the complications of talking about monsters and race. Um, so uh, the image on the Hereford map um, is uh, a turban figure who, as you say, is kind of bilaterally split down the middle with. Uh, physical features that we stereotypically associate with um, uh, with women on one side and with men on the other. And there's a caption that says, um, this is a race of two sexes. They're unnatural in many of their customs. And the turban and um, the iconography, as uh, art historians have, have pointed out, would have been instantly recognizable as depicting a, a Saracen, which is the a derogatory term for a Muslim during the time period. So by invoking the idea of the monstrous races, which I'll explain in just a moment, and placing this Muslim figure in Africa, and Africa is depicted as sort of bereft of civilization, really in contrast to the rest of the um, uh, more central areas of the map that show a lot of um, uh, uh, building and kind of like human community. And this is really like nothingness. Uh, and there's a string of monsters um, that are depicted, and some are depicted as Jewish, and this one is depicted as Muslim. And they're depicted as uh, as uh, outside of civilization, really at kind of the barren edge of the world, and lacking in the kind of structures that that one would associate with with um, human construction of society. So um, they're they're really uh, constructed as inferior barbarous um, and monstrous. And there's a legend that was very uh, popular during that time period called the so-called legend of the monstrous races. This was the idea uh, for Europeans that in places that seemed remote to Europeans, um, for instance, in Africa and Asia or the Eastern edge of the world to them, um, they imagined that uh, tribes of people with very unusual bodies and customs sort of roamed around. Um, and these included all kinds of peoples like um, people with uh, faces on their backs and, and chests and um, people with uh, like cyclops, people with the heads of dogs. And included among these was a race of what were called androgyny or hermaphrodites. And uh, they were uh, imagined to have both male and female physical body parts and to switch back and forth between male and female um, sexual or social roles. And this map image is depicting this Muslim as a member of that half male, half female monstrous race who transitions back and forth between a male category and a female category. So it's, it's definitely a dehumanizing image. It's an image that um, appears on a map that, um, that was used in part uh, as a part of, um, well, I think we can say propaganda for um, for Christian incursions in um, in the Near East uh, in the series of wars that are now often called the Crusades, and that images like this and other similar images played a role in justifying 
uh, violence against humans who were here shown to be not quite human like Europeans were um, through all of these kinds of iconographical signals. Hmm. Okay, so monster, monster is a complicated term. It meant, hmm. of course, uh, boundary crossers, uh, uh, creatures with some kind of aberrant physical um, shape or practice that transgressed a norm in Europe. But sometimes monsters also meant um, what we would call um, a disability or a morphological difference. And so at the same time that, uh, that European Christians were displacing uh, monsters to the far edges of the world, um, in the case of non-binary sex, they also identified so-called monsters, and they use the word hermaphrodites, to talk about monsters who were born in Europe too. So, you know, this language is very derogatory, of course, and, and, and offensive in, in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are the words that, um, that European Christians at the time used to discuss intersex people. So often, uh, in the case of, of uh, non-binary sex, there was sort of a dual imagination where non-binary sex was something that was used to dehumanize peoples outside the community, but it was also sometimes used as a way to reflect on differences that were um, within the community too. So in a way, um, non-binary sex does sort of transgress this inside-outside, here, um, there, you know, um, us and them, um, by really complicating binaries. I think during this time period, European thinkers seized on the idea of non-binary sex often to indicate something that crossed between two fields. And this is no, um, this is, this is a, another example of that. Okay. I've talked for a while. I can talk more about race too, or we can, we can move on. <laughs> no, it's okay. You, you, no, it was, it was great. Um, I, I did want to ask a follow-up question. I think it comes up in that chapter and may come up a little bit later, but I I think you mentioned that there were differences between Muslim and Islamic traditions and Latin European traditions with regards to sexual categories of humans. I think you mentioned how Islamic traditions did not degrade non-binary sexed individuals, at least not all the time during this large period that you're covering, Um, or, or they didn't depict them as monsters as frequently as Latin Europe. Could you give us a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you've just said it. Um, you know, uh, at least for the for the Ottoman world, uh, there there isn't the same kind of um, uh, there there isn't the same kind of use of words like monster, use of words like unnatural. Um, there is more of a, a pragmatic approach to kunta uh, to intersex individuals and efforts to. Uh, to um, to in a in a sort of um, uh, pragmatic way figure out how to fit people into what roles in society are um, going to be appropriate for that person, and we can see similar things in rabbinic law um, where we have categories of androgynos and tumtum, and we've got um, you know jurists and intellectuals thinking about these categories and um, thinking about. Uh, how classification works and how to integrate individuals who are affected into different kinds of social roles. So I, it, it's, 
it, it is other scholars have you know pointed out um, you know who are who are uh, experts on um, on you know the languages that are used in those documents that they don't see the kind of stigmatizing um, uh, sorts of words that we see on the European side of things um, the 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 language of um, of um, Oh, of divine wrath, of language of sin, language of um, of deviance and um, and monstrosity, which are are prevalent in accounts on the European side. It, 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 but you know, there is some variability over time periods too. But but mm-hmm. but there's there's definitely some stigmatization of intersex that we see um, in at least some of the documents that are talking about um, that are talking about people who. Uh, European authorities didn't see as being typically male or typically female. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I think that's just important. It's, it seems like it's more utilitarian on the Islamic side, um, but it's just I think it's just so important because there's still this idea that you know queerness it is a white thing. Queerness doesn't belong to traditionally to people of color, communities, or other cultures. So. I think that's important. Another important book in, in the way you tie the past to the present. And one other question that that came out of the your discussion of the monstrous races was the this going back and forth that hermaphrodites has have this going back and forth. And um, you make this argument, I think, about transgender history and intersex history. Can you talk about these two histories and how intimately connected are they? In your research, do you find that they're they're inextricably tied to one another. How should we think of intersex and trans and non-binary history? Well, I think it makes a big difference what time period we're talking about. So let me just sort out a few things. And just in case uh, the listeners aren't a hundred percent sure what we're talking about, um, intersex and transgender are two different modern categories. Um, intersex, uh, is, um, a, umbrella term that's used now and transgender and intersex are both umbrella terms, right? We're talking about a lot of different identities here, a lot of different variables, Uh, but intersex is a a term for um, intersex variations or a term for um, uh, individuals whom medical authorities perceive as being not typically male or not typically female. Whereas uh, transgender being distinct from that um, is a, generally we think of where somebody's inner felt gender identity or their gender practices in some way don't match up, so to speak, with the gender to which they were assigned at birth. So these are different categories. Um, Although some intersex people do identify as transgender, but but certainly not all do. So I want to make sure that it's clear that we don't conflate these two categories. Um, But at the same time, we recognize that there is some some um, some overlap and important connections between the two. Um, for one thing, they both suffered gender-based discrimination motivated by some similar concerns about gender crossing, about same-sex sexuality that's led to really harmful practices against both groups. Both groups have been very politically invested in um, uh, calls to human rights, to bodily integrity. That is the idea that people should be able to do what they want with their bodies, right? Or, mm-hmm. or not have things that they don't want done to their bodies. And um, during a period of um, real growth in in intersex um, uh, intersex political movement, some of the leaders of the movement aligned with uh, um, with uh, LGBT 
um, political activism. So there have been a lot of historic connections between the two groups. Um, And so uh, I think that that's important for the modern period. And then if we're talking about the pre-modern period, this is especially so that there's important interrelation because people aren't using the words intersex and transgender to talk about things, you know, in before 1500, of course, these were not words that they used. Um, They used words, like we said, androgen, hermaphrodite, um, you know, again, these are, these are not words that we necessarily would use now, but those, that's what they would use to talk about an intersex person, but also sometimes to talk about somebody who they thought transitioned between sex or someone who was engaged in same-sex sexuality, who we might in the modern world recognize as queer. So um, what we're talking about when we're talking about these past categories is, um, is, is not so clear cut. Um, we're sometimes talking about things that have to do with sex variants, and sometimes we're really talking about things that have to do with moving back and forth between different kinds of gender roles, which we would now more closely associate with transgender. So I think that that's that's why it's important to analytically apply um, uh, both of these categories to that history and to recognize that this belongs to an expanded timeline of history and the historical archive for for intersex, transgender, and non-binary gender, even as we are careful to not conflate or blur the lines between those categories for modern people, you know, who set their own, you know, set their own agendas and their own um, uh, vocabularies for how they want to be recognized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's definitely an important question that historians always ask themselves about applying language from the contemporary period to the past, of course. Um, speaking of the contemporary period, <laughs> uh, you in, in your introduction and your conclusion, you definitely make a case that medieval history is relevant to our contemporary moment. Why is medieval history relevant? What, why should we think about it when we think about trans politics today? I think that, you know, while I'm, obviously very interested in contemporary politics and um, and um, very committed to um, uh, movements for racial justice and trans and queer liberation. Uh, I think it's an absolutely um, powerful argument to be made by looking at these um, time periods that and societies that are remote from ours, and particularly the society of, um, of, of pre-modern Christianity. It's important both in the ways that it anticipates um, and has similarity to um, some of our ways of organizing our society and building up our categories and in, in the ways that we can find resonances and similarities. It helps us to understand in some ways why we do the things that we do, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, some of these are some of the things that we experience in our world are inheritances of this period. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the ways that things are radically different from the past can be a powerful way of allowing us to radically imagine a different future. Um, you know, when we are able to see that people had very different ways of organizing sex and gender in the past, um, you know, we can have some sense that uh, the way that we do it now is not a natural or timeless sort of way of understanding um, the world and all of our places in it. And we can understand that these things are likely to continue to change in the future. So I think also um, being able to talk about uh, 
gender in um, a society and culture vastly removed from ours makes it easier to talk about. You know, if we get into a room just full of like queer and trans people, we will quickly find that <laughs> we have many disagreements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we start our conversation talking about something that is that is different from us, that is outside of us, sometimes that is a good place to start. Um, it allows us to be able to um, to think through some of our um, some of our questions about um, about why we think the way we do and why we make some of the assumptions the way we do by by using this um, uh, this um, uh, analysis of of a, a different time and place that is both foreign to us, right? That is very distinct from us, but also um, surely is um, is also interrelated with ours. Uh, so I, I, I think that, um, that, uh, people will be surprised both by, um, how familiar some of this from the distant past scenes, mm-hmm. as well as how totally out there and, um, you know, beyond what, what we might be imagining for gender in our current time, um, might be by looking at these, these past examples. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's not just different from our time period to that time period, but within the time period that you discuss, things change over time. You know, you start with early Christianity where there was a positive association in some ways with with what was called hermaphroditism or non-binary sex. And then there's kind of a fall, right? And it's and throughout the like middle chapters, it kind of gets degraded in a way and correct me if I'm wrong, of course. And then your last chapter is the Jesus hermaphrodite <laughs> and with alchemists who, who are um, elevating hermaphroditism again and non-binary sex again. So, so it changes even dramatically within your book and there's so much diversity too. You know, you, you really draw attention to the fact that um, there's, there's kind of a narrative unfolding where by the end, of the late middle, the late middle ages and the early Renaissance, but there is this idea that non-binary sex gets degraded, but at the same time you draw attention to like a counter tradition. Right. So, so can you talk a little bit about like how periodization figures in your book and, and the narrative arc and the narrative structure about, about non-binary gender that emerged from your research? Yes. And let me just first say that it's precisely this last image I was talking about that I think can be so surprising to modern audiences, right? This so-called Jesus hermaphrodite, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that that's another another thing I'd like people to take away um, is I, I think that when we imagine the distant past, we, we tend to imagine that it will certainly be um, much more repressive, much narrower in its imagination, right? Of... Mm-hmm. of um, you know, of, of gender variation. But here we have images of Jesus, inarguably a central character in, in history, uh, <laughs> depicted in, 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 and certainly in, you know, if we might say positive terms, as non-binary sexed, as an amalgam of male and female characteristics, and illustrated visually as half male and half female um, much like those images of the monstrous races that we were talking about, um, which of course had a very different message. But here, Jesus is imagined to transcend divisions of, um, of male and female gender. And this is 
presented, you know, non-binary gender is not here something to be erased or corrected or ejected from the community, but rather an ideal, something perfect, something uh, aspirational, um, and something uh, transformative, and um, having a, uh, almost unimaginable political potential. And mm-hmm. so that's that's where I think it's useful to turn our attention to um, where ideas from out of time. Um, might suggest to us uh, political potential in other ways. And so I guess I can come to your question about temporality. Well, you know, you've noted my my vexed feelings about temporality. I'm <laughs> sort of, uh, uh, if, if I might say, riding the line between histor- historicist, chronological, you know, um, approaches to history and my... Um, my emotional investments in, in queer temporality and touching people across time and, you know, finding community in the distant past with people who we can never really know. And I think that that's, uh, that's a part of what I'm trying to say in the book, both, you know, I, I, I try to be a, a, a good historicist and give us something that we can hang on to in terms of a linear narrative, but by the end, I've kind of broken that down <laughs> and, and said that, you know, we we really um, that, that this history goes beyond a linear reckoning of time. And that I I think it has both um, uh, emotional and political potential to um, to help us to to sort of rethink um, our relationships to um, to our, our political and historical antecedents. And, uh, and that's something I, I try to communicate in the conclusion and invite readers to think of themselves differently in time. Certainly. I think you communicate that. Absolutely. In, in some ways, the book does conform to a narrative structure, but you certainly challenge the teleological version of history that we've inherited through the discipline. Um, and that, that that's that's clear throughout. And it's challenging, I might imagine. I mean, I've never written a book, but I imagine that that's very hard to do. (laughs) Um, I wanted to go back to your last chapter about Christ, the ultimate non-binary figure. I'm quoting, quoting you. Um, And also totally a surprise to me, the philosopher's stone, which was imbued as well through a metaphor of the hermaphrodite with like having these transformative powers. And of course I couldn't help but think of, you know, commander in chief of the turf army, which is right now JK Rowling. So I wanted to ask you if first you could tell our listeners about the philosopher's stone and what you discovered in your research. And then, you know, if you could directly speak (laughs) to JK Rowling, who of course drew on the philosopher's stone in her amazing books, um, the Harry Potter um, what, what what would you say to her? Well, let me start with the the uh, the philosopher's stone and alchemy, and it, it's I'm so glad you asked because it really in thinking about chronology, this really does take me all the way back to the beginning. And uh, mm. my first book, as you mentioned, was on alchemy, and it was when I was reading alchemical texts that I first encountered um, the the images that. Um, that set into motion this entire project. So uh, in alchemy, there's kind of an active chemical agent that's called the philosopher's stone. And this is the chemical that is thought to transmute base metals into gold or transmute um, 
humans into like perfect health. So it's um, this seemingly almost magical substance. And over and over again, in the alchemical manuscripts that I was reading for my first book, this philosopher's stone was represented as the alchemical hermaphrodite. And I just couldn't help but wonder over and over again, you know, why were alchemists imagining this like exceptional um, transformative substance in in the guise of a non-binary figure? Uh, And uh, right about the time that I started to think about that and, um, and, uh, and was completing that work on my first book, my partner who is transgender had top surgery, um, which is a form of gender affirming surgery. And so, you know, ideas about bodies and non-binary bodies and classification and uh, language about sex and gender. I mean, it just all really was rising to the fore of what I was thinking about. And here were these images in my manuscripts that just seemed to speak to that, that um, moment, both of questioning and transformation. And, um, uh, that's how I started to wonder uh, how did people see non-binary sex in the past? What did it mean uh, in to to medicine? What did it mean to the law? What did it mean to um, to religious authorities? What did it mean to people um, writing poetry? You know, and that's how I ended up going in so many different directions just to try to get the shape of what um, what these figures and ideas meant for people in the past and as a way of finding out what they might mean to me now. And uh, so that's how, uh, that's, that's how alchemy connected to this project. And I think that, you know, in this very personal way, it connects strangely enough to JK Rowling um, because uh, also around that same time period, my partner and I had a child who went on to become semi obsessed with Harry Potter (laughs) <laughs> and uh, who loved, loved, loved Harry Potter books. Mm-hmm. And I did too. <laughs> and when um, J.K. Rowling, uh, you know, said all these very transphobic things, it was extremely painful mm-hmm. um, to my to our family and to my son. And he said, "Well, I don't want to read her books anymore because she would hate us and hate oh our gosh. family." Wow. And so I don't know that J.K. Rowling understands the impact of those tweets or whatever, um, you know, whatever, you know, is the nature of her turfdom Um, and what it means to all of the readers out there who care so much about her art. uh, I think it's really hard for people to separate out the art from the artist and, and particularly for children, that's difficult. So, I guess that's what I would say to J.K. Rowling. Is that, well, that, I hope she hears it. That that's the impact of those statements on a reader from a transgender family. So, um, That's really I, powerful. Thank you for sharing that. It's, yeah, I hope, she re- I hope she reads it. And your child sounds very brilliant and very strong, nonetheless. And yeah, for the generation of us, and it's continued seemingly, but the generation of us who loved Harry Potter, it was horrible to see all those commentary, all that commentary and, and to question where she gives her money, you know, <laughs> not just tweets, but what is she doing with her fortune? 
you know? So, and you know, I love that though. I love that. I was going to ask about alchemy and if it came from your first book and you know, the, the way that you even started to write about this topic. Um, and, and speaking of that, um, you know, now we're getting to the end. It's been 50 minutes. Um, I did want to ask about the reception of the book. Uh, of course, it just came out and we know that it's sold out. So it's definitely been received well. But is your book, con- do you think that there's controversial arguments that you make? Um, and how was the process of writing the book? What kind of, and especially in the field of medieval history, what's the state of trans and queer history in medieval history? I think it's growing. I, you know, I think a lot has changed since I started writing the book. Uh, I, I certainly got uh, some, some uh, reviewer feedback on the very first writings that I did from this that were skeptical of the categories and approaches that I took. But it's been a little while and I, I think, I think that medieval historians are, are, I think the world has changed a lot and I think that they're ready for it. And there are so many young scholars doing amazing work in, um, in trans studies, um, in, in critical intersex studies, um, bringing all of their ideas and politics and voices into pre-modern uh, studies. So I think that uh, on the one hand, if uh, anyone out there is get ever gets a you know a, a a review for an article that that thinks your article is crazy, maybe just wait. <laughs> hmm. And um, you know it it might be that um, that your approach is just fine. Um, and uh, and also um, you know I really am excited about um, you know the way forward for all of these emerging researchers. I think who are really uh, shaking up um, uh, ancient and medieval uh, history and studies in in a really wonderful way, um, and and not just um, in um, in in terms of uh, trans studies, but critical race studies and and pre modern um, history, and and especially in ancient and medieval history, is just a really burgeoning and exciting field, um, and so. Um, I would say the state of the field is is good, <laughs> and that uh, there's a there are a lot of new thinkers and new ideas coming into it that have really reinvigorated it for me and a lot of other scholars. And I've really enjoyed learning from um, from these younger researchers. That's wonderful. That's really great to hear. And it's good, you know, to keep pushing forward, even if your work, even if you doubt the the utility of your work and your approach. Well, Leah, I, the last comment that I wanted to make is that your book, you can totally tell that it's infused with love. Um, you tell us in the acknowledgments that your partner is non-binary trans and you dedicate it to Macaulay as well. And you can, you know, it, it, it's definitely, it's definitely there. The love is there and I appreciate it as a trans non-binary person myself. And I'm sure many people will. And so I just, I hope that everybody reads your book. It's a wonderful book and congratulations. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I've just really, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. You too.